Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. In this special masterclass episode, we'll be talking with Met Office tropical prediction scientist Julian Hemming. I'm Helen Roberts and joining me today is Mostly Weather regular, sky watcher, cloud spotter and comedian Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hi Jeff. Hello. <laughs> and of course, a very warm welcome to Julian. Hello, hello. So Julian, as a tropical prediction scientist, how did you get into predicting hurricanes? Well, it actually it sort of happened by accident way back in the early 90s, in the early part of my career. Um, my manager at the time, he decided it would be a good idea to look at how well we predicted tropical cyclones in our computer model, which we were running at the time. So he gave me the task of uh, devising a way of what we call verifying the tropical cyclone forecast. So I set this system up and we could then see how well the model performed. And actually, we concluded that it wasn't performing very well because we hadn't looked at it before. We didn't know how well it was performing and there's certainly room for improvement. And so that set off a kind of chain of events because from that point onwards, I then looked more at how we could improve the computer model. So looking at ways in which we represent tropical cyclones in computer models and developing new ways of doing that. And through some collaborative work, which we did in the mid nineties with uh, some scientists at uh, Hong Kong University, we actually managed to achieve a big step improvement in the forecasts of tropical cyclones in our computer model for uh, improve things by about 30% in one go. And at that point, the Met Office model sort of became a player in the, in the kind of global stage, if you like, in terms of uh, tropical cyclone prediction and other agencies around the world became interested in it. So from that point onwards, I became the kind of main point of contact with various warning centres for tropical cyclones around the world. And we do a lot of collaboration and data exchange, and that's gone on for many years since. You said there that before that point in time that we hadn't really been doing anything along those lines. Was it being done elsewhere? Were other places around the world predicting tropical storms? Well, at that time, there were several global models and they were producing forecasts. But I think in those days, the resolution of those models was relatively poor. And with tropical cyclones, you get some very fine detail, the strongest winds and the structure of the storm kind of small scale. So it was difficult for those models to represent tropical cyclones. So obviously there were at that time tropical cyclone prediction centers around the world and they did use whatever computer model was available to them. But often they had to rely on their own uh, sometimes statistical techniques or just their experience to predict tropical cyclones. And then it's really in the last 30 years or so that the, the models have become far more into play in terms of producing good forecasts for tropical cyclones. Should we just go back to basics for a minute and how they form and, and what they are? And actually, perhaps, Julian, it would be good to start with the difference between hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons. Yes, well, they're essentially um, different names for the same thing. So it depends on in which part of the world they develop. So hurricanes is the most familiar term that we're used to. And you uh, get hurricanes in the Atlantic region and in the Eastern Pacific. And it's specifically tropical storms which reach wind speeds of uh, 74 miles an hour. And at that point, it's called a hurricane. Now, in other parts of the world, uh, there are different names. So in the Western Pacific, the same thing is called a typhoon. And then over in the Indian Ocean, uh, the North and the South, and also in parts of the South Pacific, they're generally just referred to as cyclones. But essentially, they're all the same thing. And how do they form? How do they develop? Well, there's several different components are needed to form a, a tropical storm. Uh, firstly, is heat and moisture. So obviously, they'll develop in the tropics where you have a good source of heat. 
and the moisture they mostly form or they almost exclusively form over uh, the open ocean where they have a source of moisture from the ocean surface those aren't the only two things that are needed because you can have heat and moisture, but you don't necessarily get a tropical cyclone. So you need what we call low-level convergence. Now, what that is, is where the winds close to the surface of the ocean, the winds will come from slightly different directions. They will converge. And when you get two masses of air converging, there's only one thing that can happen and that it goes, goes upwards. And as it goes upwards, the moisture condenses, forms clouds, and then you get clusters of storm clouds. And then if those clusters kind of have the right conditions to amalgamate together, they will start to uh, rotate, which is a, a kind of consequence of the rotation of the Earth, is that these storms start to rotate and form a low pressure area. And at that point, you have the beginnings of a tropical storm. And then if the conditions are right, it can develop into something even stronger. So in the Atlantic, where do they actually come from? Well, in the Atlantic, there's a special mechanism which probably accounts for at least 60% of all the storms we have there. And that is what we call African easterly waves. Now, during the early part of the summer, we get a kind of heat differential across parts of Western Africa, which causes what we call a low-level jet stream to emerge off the coast of Africa. So that jet stream kind of moves from the east to the west. And what happens from about June, July onwards, we get these things called easterly waves, which are little disturbances in the, uh, in the atmosphere, which move off the coast of Africa out into the Atlantic. And every now and again, one of those will uh, develop into a tropical storm if the conditions are right, if there's plenty of heat and moisture. There's also what we term low wind shear, which means that as you go up through the atmosphere, the winds don't vary a lot. So it allows the storms to develop to a great height into the atmosphere and amalgamate to become a tropical storm. So in the Atlantic, the majority of storms we get have those origins. Now, they don't all develop near the coast of Africa. Sometimes these waves can move right across the Atlantic over to the Caribbean and even into the Gulf of Mexico before they actually develop into a tropical storm. But that's one of the, the kind of source regions for storms in that area. And of course, we're generally interested in what happens to them as they make landfall, because that's where most of the people are. So, so the most impacts, but they do change, don't they, Julian, as they move from sea onto land? They need the warmth and the ocean surface, the moisture from the ocean to maintain strength. So when a tropical cyclone moves over land, it's immediately losing its source of moisture and energy. And also there's an increased amount of friction near the surface of the, uh, of the storm. So immediately as the storm moves inland, we normally see the winds decreasing and the storm will be uh, inevitably downgraded. If it was a hurricane, it might get downgraded to a tropical storm, then a tropical depression as it moves further inland. Although the impacts don't diminish extremely quickly, particularly in terms of the rainfall, because the rainfall can stretch a long way inland even after the winds have died down, as we saw with uh, Hurricane Ida, which uh, produced very heavy rainfall right across the USA, even when the winds had died down considerably. So the difference between a tropical storm and a hurricane is this wind speed, is it? It is, yes. The, the definitions of tropical storm and hurricane and what we call major hurricane are related directly to the wind speed. So a tropical storm is when the winds reach 39 miles an hour. A hurricane is when they reach 74 miles an hour. And although we define it by uh, wind speed, there are multiple impacts from tropical cyclones, which will not only be wind, but also storm surge. And as I've already mentioned, the rainfall. And those other two are not necessarily directly related to the wind speed. So sometimes you can get a large storm surge, a large amount of rainfall from a slightly weaker hurricane in terms of its wind strength compared to some others. We uh, in the UK often see the remnants of ex-hurricanes as they move across the Atlantic and, and head in our direction. And sometimes when they reach the UK, they can still be 
quite impactful weather events in themselves, but they are quite different, aren't they, by the time they potentially reach our shores? Yes, hurricanes which turn northwards when they're out in the mid-Atlantic, they move through the subtropics and then they move to higher latitudes into what we call the mid-latitudes. And as they do that, they'll lose the warm ocean surface because um, the sea temperatures gradually decrease as you go northwards. And so based on that alone, the tropical cyclone should weaken because it has uh, less uh, warmth from the ocean surface. But sometimes these storms go through what we call extratropical transition which is whereby it changes its energy source from instead of being uh, taking its energy from the surface of the ocean, it then becomes a bit more like a conventional storm system, which we get in the UK, where the energy is derived from the clash of cold air coming down from the poles and the warmer air coming up from the subtropics. And hurricanes can sometimes go through that transition from one type of storm to another, and so can maintain a lot of strength, even when they come up to the kind of latitudes of the UK. And we saw that, I mean, an example a few years ago was Hurricane Ophelia, which uh, maintained a lot of strength as it moved up towards our latitudes. And although it didn't have a great deal of impact on the UK, it actually had a lot of impact on, on parts of Ireland as it skirted just to the west of Ireland. I remember Ophelia well. I was a, a operational meteorologist at the time, and it was really incredible to see the strength it maintained and even those tropical characteristics as it got really quite close to the UK. Was that unusual? Was that quite an exceptional event? Yes, I mean, the thing which is important if we want to see impacts from tropical cyclones as they move uh, towards the UK is that they do it quite quickly. Because if they move quite slowly, then there's more time for them to lose the energy from the ocean surface as they move up into cooler waters. But with Ophelia, it moved north on the very eastern side of the Atlantic rather than coming in from the, the more western side of the Atlantic. And so it wasn't very long over the cooler waters by the time it reached our latitudes, which meant it still had a lot of the strength which it had when it was a genuine hurricane. I was working on the research aircraft at the time and we flew ah. through it. <laughs> well, uh, do you know, I was going to uh... ask you, Jeff, if you'd flown through a hurricane or a tropical storm. No, we've flown through the remnants of one and uh, I remember we were trying to get down to uh, 100 foot to, to measure just above the sea in the aircraft but because of the wave height we settled on 250 foot as being the minimum we would fly through but yeah that was the closest I came to making use of the uh, sick bags on board that flight <laughs> five hours of bumping through a hurricane you know ex-hurricane I should say. Some severe turbulence there. Quite a bit. <laughs> So, Julian, perhaps we could put this one to bed then once and for all. Can we get a hurricane in the UK? We can't get what we would genuinely call a hurricane, as in it has the structure of a hurricane as well as the wind strength of a hurricane. So even some of the severest storms that we've had over the UK, and of course the one which is most notable in the, in the history books is uh, the 1987 storm, that wasn't a hurricane because it, you know, obviously it had wind strengths which were um, very close to hurricane strength, but it derived its energy from, as I described earlier, the clash of the colder air and the warmer air coming from different directions. And so it had a completely different structure to a hurricane. But as I said, we and as we've, dis we've discussed with Ophelia, sometimes we can get the remnants of hurricanes, and we call them remnants, and actually sometimes they can maintain strength, uh, even up to our latitudes. By the time they get to us, they have been declassified as a hurricane, if you like. That, that classification process is a little bit um, ambiguous. Well, it's kind of very subjective in a way, and it's done by the forecasters at the National Hurricane Centre. There's a point where they say it no longer has enough characteristics to be termed a hurricane, so we no longer call it a hurricane. But that doesn't mean that it's gone. It just means it's, it's a different kind of beast, if you like, and, uh, and its structure is a bit different. And as you mentioned just now, we can 
potentially get hurricane strength winds that's from from the Beaufort scale in the UK so it's understandable that there can be some confusion but the hurricane itself is all about those tropical characteristics and that as you say quite subjective assessment. Yes, that's right. There's two ends of the spectrum. You have the, the genuine tropical cyclone, which doesn't have fronts, doesn't have a warm or a cold front, and it derives its energy from the warm ocean surface. And generally, the strongest winds are in a very tight core around the centre. And then you have an extra tropical storm or a non-tropical storm, which we might get in our latitudes, which have a much larger wind field. The winds stretch out a lot further from the centre and um, the way in which it derives its energy is completely different. But it's a sliding scale and you can get storms which are somewhere in the middle of that scale as well. Uh, ones which transition from hurricane through to non-tropical system. But even the, um, the the ones that don't actually reach us can impact on the jet stream and, and have an effect on the UK weather, I believe. Yes, that's right. A lot of hurricanes which move up through uh, the Atlantic into high latitudes, they might pass close to the eastern tip of Canada and they move up towards Greenland and Iceland as uh, extratropical cyclones. But they have downstream effects. They kind of perturb the weather, if you like. And actually, it makes it a lot harder to, to forecast. I mean, our forecasters here at the Met Office, they very much dislike occasions when hurricanes move up into mid-latitudes. It makes things a lot more uncertain in terms of the downstream impacts on the weather in the UK, even if we don't get a direct impact from the hurricane itself. Certainly does. Yeah, I can vouch for that one. So um, we've already mentioned a couple of storms in particular. We talked about Ophelia and Ida. Are there any others, Julian, that during your career are really memorable for any particular reason? Uh, Yes, there's a few that spring to mind. If we go back quite a long way, uh, there's one which was quite infamous uh, back in 1992, which is Hurricane Andrew, which hit Miami. And it was a very destructive hurricane, made a direct strike on the city of Miami. Uh, It was Category 5, so uh, very strong winds and caused a lot of damage. There's two things which are interesting about uh, Andrew. First of all, uh, by having the name beginning with A, it was the first storm of the season. And it was actually late August, so it's very late to have the first storm of the season. And in fact, 1992 was a very quiet Atlantic season. But Andrew was a very destructive storm. It kind of brings through the message that... Uh, which is often put across by the National Hurricane Centre, that you don't have to have an active season for it to be damaging in your part of the world. You can still get one very strong hurricane to cause that kind of damage. But the interesting thing about Andrew was uh, when I look back at some of the simulations we had in our computer model and how poor they were at that time, because Andrew was a very compact hurricane, and I think it was the central pressure in in the centre of that hurricane was measured at 922 millibars. Now, wow. the, the analysis, which our computer model at the time came up with, simply had didn't even have a closed isobar, if you like. It just had a what we call an open wave and a, a pressure of about 1,013 millibars. And it just shows how poor the resolution of our models were at that time for representing these uh, structures, particularly a small hurricane like uh, Andrew was. And it kind of is a good benchmark to look at to see how far we've come, because now with the computer models we have, we're able to represent those storms are much, much better. And and quite often we can have very low pressures in our, our computer model simulations of, of tropical cyclones. Now, it's, they're certainly not perfect, particularly for intensity. But uh, in terms of forecasting track, our computer models now are so much better than they were back in the in, in the early 90s then when Andrew happened. Kind of good statistic for that is if you look at how well our the Met Office uh, model performs now, the errors in the forecasting of tropical cyclone track 
uh, the five-day forecast is now as good as the two-day forecast was 25 years ago, which is kind of a, a measure of how things have progressed during that time. Oh, wow, so that's really incredible. Yeah, the other storm I particularly remember, and a lot of people, other people will remember, is um, uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which produced devastating uh, flooding in New Orleans. And again, there was an interesting forecast issue with this one in that the storm actually developed just like Hurricane Andrew. Actually, it was over our UK bank holiday weekend at the end of August. It seems to be a favoured time for major hurricanes, actually. And um, on the on the Friday afternoon, all the computer models were suggesting that Katrina would cross the southern tip of Florida as probably a category one hurricane, do a sharp turn right and then make another landfall without any significant strengthening. And then suddenly on that Friday afternoon, all the computer models started to shift and they were then predicting that it would carry on a bit further into the Gulf of Mexico. And that was quite critical because Katrina then moved over what we call the warm core ring. Now, what that is, is you get warm water moving up from the Caribbean into the Gulf of Mexico and you get a little cutoff ring of very warm water, which happens over the uh, Gulf of Mexico sometimes. And Katrina passed right over that ring of warm water and explosively deepened from category one to category five very, very quick. Wow. And then progressed up towards New Orleans. And although it weakened in terms of its wind strength before it reached New Orleans, um, the damage was done, if you like, in terms of it already churning up a very strong and large storm surge, which then, because of the track of the storm, funneled it into the Mississippi Delta and, and caused the devastation that, that we saw. From my perspective, they, they always seem to get towards Florida and then turn north. Is that, what, what's the mechanism behind that? And is that always the case? Well, as, as uh, tropical cyclones move, uh, particularly the ones in the Atlantic from um, from the east towards the west, they'll have a slight polewards bias uh, most of the time. I mean, the, a kind of typical track of a storm is, is to be moving slightly north of west. And then at some point it will do a sharper turn and it'll reach a point which we call recurvature, which is where it's then going due north. And then it'll turn back and start moving towards the northeast. Now, that is what we might call a typical tropical cyclone track. But every storm will be different and some can have very different tracks to that. They'll be far more convoluted. Some will some will even slow down, stop, do a kind of loop the loop and then track back on themselves. And often it's very much dependent on how the hurricane sits in relation to the larger scale uh, weather systems around it. Uh, and particularly the strength of a kind of block of high pressure which sits further to the north over the subtropics. Now, if that block of high pressure is very, very strong, then it's more likely that the hurricane will keep going west and could reach the Caribbean, USA, uh, Gulf of Mexico, or the east coast of the USA. Now, if that uh, high pressure area is slightly weaker, it allows the storm to turn north a little bit sooner. And so it avoids landfall over uh, the USA or the Caribbean. And those are the kind of systems which can actually end up heading up towards our part of the world. So it does vary a lot from one storm to the next. Um, the, 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 there's no, there's not really a typical track. There's a storm, there's a storm track which is most likely, but uh, it can vary hugely from one storm to the next. So let's turn our minds towards the future. Then, how do we think climate change will impact either the frequency or intensity, or, or even perhaps track of, of tropical storms? Yes, this is a question which has, has, has taxed minds of, of, of many and been the subject of lots of discussions. Interestingly, it was Hurricane Katrina and the whole season in 2005 which kicked off the discussion, although there was obviously uh, talk about it before then. With the nature of that very active hurricane season we had, there was a lot more discussion about it. Uh, what do we expect to see? And the, the second aspect is, have we seen it already? So if I address the first of those. 
what we expect to see in a warming world, just through the simple science, is more uh, more heat, more moisture. So we would expect more intense tropical cyclones. Now, if you translate that into the kind of climate models which are run, they've produced varying uh, different uh, answers to the question as to what's going to happen in a warmer world. But there is a, a kind of has been a kind of emerging consensus over the years that as a result of increasing global temperatures, we wouldn't necessarily see an increase in the total number of tropical cyclones worldwide. That might stay the same or even reduce slightly. But what we might see is an increase in the number or the proportion which reach the higher intensities as uh, the sort of category four and five kind of storms. And the other aspect which is expected from the, the climate model simulations is an increase in rainfall within tropical cyclones. So that will mean that obviously when they make landfall, they could produce a bit more rain than they might have done otherwise. So those are the kind of things we're expecting and we see from, from the climate model simulations. Now, the other side of that is, can we actually observe that now? And that is a much more tricky question because tropical cyclones are very distinct features. They are highly variable naturally from one region to the next and uh, from one season to the next. So, for example, in the Atlantic, we've had seasons, well, if we take last season, for example, which had the highest number of tropical storms we've ever had in the Atlantic season, there were 30. There have been other seasons where you might only get seven or eight tropical storms, and there's a lot of natural variability in there. So in order to be able to pick out the uh, longer-term climate change signal is, is is very, very difficult as things stand looking at the current uh, climate record. But there are little hints here and there that from some of the research that's done that we can we can say, for example, that in a particular storm that made landfall and produced a lot of rain, that this was more intense as a result of the change in our uh, global temperatures. But to, to give a, a definitive answer as to can we see this uh, change taking place now, it's a lot harder to, if you like, tease out the, the signal from the noise that we get to, from the natural variation that happens. Julian, you mentioned how active last season was and uh, something we haven't discussed is the naming convention for tropical storms and what happens when seasons are extremely active. Could you just talk us through how that works? Yes, there's actually different systems for naming in different parts of the world. So uh, the ones we're probably most familiar with is uh, in areas such as the Atlantic, the Eastern Pacific, and there's a few other regions of the world where they might have lists which they start at a storm beginning with A each year and then work their way through the alphabet. In some other parts of the world, actually, it's done slightly differently. So in the Western Pacific, there's just a continuous cycle of names and they're not in alphabetical order and they're not actually real person's names. They, they can be uh, local names in some of the countries that are affected by the storms, which are kind of adjectives or the names of animals and that kind of thing. But if we go back to areas such as the Atlantic, where they have the alphabetical lists, occasionally, and we have we saw it last year, they managed to exhaust that list of names. They get right to the bottom of it. And it's happened twice in the Atlantic. So it happened in 2005 and it happened again uh, in 2020. And in those two years, once we exhausted the list of names, we then went through to the uh, Greek letters of the alphabet, alpha, beta, gamma, and so on. And so that's happened twice, but it's not going to happen again because after last season, there was a change in policy, which meant that if we exhaust the list again, then there was a reserve list, which starts again with a name beginning with A and then works through again. So if it happens again, there'll be no more letters of the Greek alphabet. That's so interesting. That's that's really fascinating. And sometimes names get retired. Is that right? Yes, that's right. If there's uh, a storm which is particularly notorious and particularly for those which sadly cause uh, a lot of deaths, those names 
we don't want to reuse them because typically in the Atlantic, there will be six lists of names. So every six years, the same list of names will be reused, uh, which is fine for most storms which uh, don't uh, have any great impacts. But for those which are particularly notorious, so for example, Hurricane Katrina, that name was retired and there's been several others. Most years that there might be one or two which are, are retired because they're particularly notorious and we don't want to reuse those names on another storm. This has been such an interesting conversation, Julian. I really appreciate it. And I think Jeff and I could have talked to you for a, another couple I've of hours. I've got many more this. questions. <laughs> but we do have to call it a day there. So that's it for another episode of Mostly Weather. We hope you enjoyed this masterclass on tropical storms. A big thank you to Julian Hemming, our resident expert. And many thanks to, to Jeff. Mostly Weather is produced by Claire Nazir and editor is Adrian Holloway and we'll see you next time for another dive into the fascinating world of weather. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.